Welcome back to the Shema Podcast, the podcast for the perplexed. And I have a question that I believe will make you perplexed as well. What I wanted to discuss today is a subject that at first glance, I think many of us know the answer to. Those of us who are new to approaching Torah. But when you stop and think through this question, you'll find that for many of us, that we become quite baffled and we don't actually know the correct answer. What is the question I'm referring to? The question is, what is the Torah? You know, many of us, the first thing that comes to mind is those Torah scrolls with the five books of Moses, the ones we've seen in our synagogues. But is that actually the answer in totality? I mean, we also know from studying Parsha in that written Torah that I just described to you that Abraham knew all of Torah, but did he know the content of that written Torah? Did he know when he came back from the binding of Isaac that Sarah would die? And when we received, as we always hear, we received the Torah at Mount Sinai. But is that what we received? Did Moses come down from Mount Sinai with those Torah scrolls? Because if he did, Korach would have said, amazing, guys, did you hear? I am a Parsha in the Torah. And his friends would say, well, what does it say? It says here that I am going to defy Moshe and Aaron and Hashem is going to open up the ground and swallow me and all my descendants and all my property. Obviously, that did not take place. History would have unfolded a little differently if that had been the case. So we're back to the original question. What is Torah? And what does that written Torah say about what happened at Mount Sinai? It said there was a national revelation where all the Jewish people heard the first two mitzvot. I am Lord your God who took you out of the land of Egypt and don't take any other gods before me. That's all the Jewish people heard. That's all what we're told is that's really all that God need them to hear, to verify that anything that Moshe brought down from outside night, anything he told them after that event, they knew that that came from God himself. And then Moses comes down from Mount Sinai the second time with the tablets, and that has the Ten Commandments, the Ten Mitzvos. But what about the other 603? We're told there's 613 mitzvot. Where are they? The written Torah also explains how over the next 40 years that Moses sat in the tent of meeting with a visible presence of Hashem through these clouds that would rest over the tent. And Moses would sit there and have prophecy and teach what we call the oral Torah to the Jewish people. And that oral Torah ended up becoming written down several thousand years ago and what we call the Mishnah Torah. And then all the commentary around that Mishnah Torah was compiled by the sages and put into a document we now called the Talmud. But it still brings many questions. Right now, I'm spending most of my time studying Halacha. And my wife and I are sort of focused right now on the Halacha around Shabbos. Is that Torah? Because one of the things that came up the other day was in our conversation is, if you have an oven that has a Shabbos mode. Can you actually use 
the oven in Shabbos mode for Shabbos? Or is it only really used and applicable for Yom Tov Day? What about driving in a car? We know that driving a car with a combustible engine creates fire. We know the Torah is very clear. Do not light fire on Shabbos. Okay, that's easy conclusion, an easy adaptation. But what about driving in a Tesla? I doubt that's something that came up in the tent of meeting when Moses was conveying all of Torah to the Jewish people. So it comes back to my question. Am I studying Torah when I'm studying these laws and this practical application to how to observe Shabbos in the year 2021 with all this technology that we have at our disposal? What about Midrash? The colorful explanation of all the commentary we read in the written Torah that brings so much more clarity and light to what is actually happening in those weekly Parshas. Is that Torah? Where did it come from? The more I contemplate it, the more I realize I don't understand it. Now, to some degree, I do. I have sort of acquired sort of a, an overall comprehension of what it is, but I don't have clarity on it. I don't have succinct clarity on it because if someone asked me right now, what is Torah? I wouldn't be able to succinctly and with clarity explain what it is, which means I don't really know what that means. This is something I probably should have covered in the very first Shema podcast episode. It's so fundamental. And the more I talk about it with Jews who are new to Torah, and we have this conversation, what is Torah? We all realize we really don't even know the answer. But I have good news for all of us because the guest I have coming on to answer this fundamental but complex question for us is a rabbi that I've not brought on before, Rabbi Nagel. His name has come up before as I talked about my what I've observed being in the community and how he teaches a Dolph Yomi class. And there's always a crowd of, of young people sitting around, clinging on his every word. He is a person who was, was the original torch rabbi. He really was the most instrumental figure in developing this Jewish community that I now get to enjoy everything that's here. It would have not have happened without him. The fact that we have schools and, and all the Jewish restaurants and a Kashrut association, all these things. He was instrumental in making this community what it is today. And I just sort of step in and take it all for granted, but it wouldn't be here if it wasn't for this person. So the good news that I said is that I have the perfect person to answer this question. So while we may be a bit perplexed and confused right now, by the end of this episode, I am absolutely confident that we will know the answer. And when someone else asks us that question, or when you ask them the question, what is Torah? And they say what most people knew to Torah Judaism say, which is the Torah scrolls. And you get them to think through it and realize they don't know the answer either, that you will be able to answer it as well. So while we are a bit confused, this is the podcast for the perplexed. But the one thing about this podcast is I bring on amazing guests, amazing Torah scholars. So at the end of every episode, we are no longer perplexed. Well, that is until I bring up the next question that I'm pondering. Welcome to the Shema podcast, the podcast for the perplexed where Torah insights intertwine through personal stories as well as interviews with leading Torah scholars demonstrate the empowering qualities of Torah and mitzvot. 
For more great TOR learning through TORCH, the TOR Outreach Center of Houston, go to torchweb.org. Now to the show. Rabbi Nagel, thank you so much for joining us on the Schmall Podcast. I appreciate you being on with us. It is truly an honor, and I'm so excited. I was just listening to that intro. I heard it time, and I'm like, wow, this is, you really got something here. So I'm super impressed, and I love it. All right. It's a good topic. So I was thinking about this a little bit before you arrived. In my business, in any business, you got to have an elevator pitch. So like in my industry, you go to a conference and you have the name badge. They know you're a sponsor. Your prospects are all around you. You get on the elevator. Someone comes in that's a prospect for you. They see your name badge and say, so tell me what you do. And you have like 30 seconds to basically explain in totality, but concisely and clearly, the benefit that you would provide to them so that they would want to continue the conversation. So when that elevator door opens and they're beelining it to the bar, that they say, hey, come with me. I want to learn more about that. Okay? So we got the same dilemma in Jewish outreach. So if you would, just imagine we're at a conference and we're representing Torch. And you're in the elevator. Someone walks in, a fellow Jew, and says, so what do you do? And you say, I teach for Torch, the Tor Outreach Center of Houston. Our job is to teach Torah to Jews like yourself. And then they respond back with, so what is Torah? Boom. Can you do that in 30 seconds before the elevator door opens? I'll tell you, thinking about this, and before I give you the elevator pitch, I just want to share with you really what I believe, not what is Torah as much as what can Torah do for me is more of the question that I would feel is what they really want to know. But I will address the other question of what is Torah as well. But because it hit my head, I want to share it with you. Many years ago, I was a young student, and this is something that a teacher of mine gave as an illustration, a rabbi of mine, an illustration of what Torah can do for a person. What does it do for a person? How does it transform a person? And he said, basically, what you can imagine is you're looking at a picture and you're seeing a picture of a beautiful view and there's a person inside the picture. And try to imagine yourself as that person that's standing in the picture and looking around at this beautiful vista that's the sunset or whatever it is that's in their picture. And they love it and they think about themselves as being perfect and whole in every aspect of their life. And then they suddenly... Are, their eyes are opened up that right outside the picture is an entirely new dimension. There's a third dimension that they've never even met. There's depth that they've not experienced to. And when they see that outside view, what's out there, and they're inside the picture, they realize that their entire life is simply two-dimensional. And it's lacking so much compared to what's out there. And they look outside the picture longingly for what what they feel is so out of their reach. And then someone whispers in the air and says, like, let me tell you, you can also get that entirely new dimension. And you're not limited in your two-dimensional world to what you, your existence is as you see it. There's an entirely new dimension of existence that's applicable and real for you that you can step out of that picture and hit that new dimension. That's the visual of what Torah can do and does do to people. And I'm sure just from this Torah that you've studied, you see that in your life. Absolutely. 
but I feel it ca- encapsulates the experience of when you're in a picture as a two-dimensional figure, you can't even imagine that there's another layer of existence that you're missing out on. And only when you're exposed to it and you see it and you experience it, then all, then that opens you up to an entirely new level of existence, really. The meaning in life changes completely. And that's really what Torah is my, that's my elevator pitch, just to what it does for you, what it's for for you. And actually, that is the more accurate elevator pitch because the elevator pitch is about benefit. So I'm getting into the technicalities, the features. So it's probably not the best analogy to use when someone says, but what is Torah? Right. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get down to the direct question. What is Torah? So let's just translate first the word Torah. We use it. What does it mean? So there's a meaning to the word. It's the same root as the word more, which is the Hebrew word for teacher. So it's teaching. That's what it is. It's showing in a teaching manner what, the question is what, but that's what it's there for. And it's interesting that it's not the Torah's words is, te- the word for Torah is teaching, but the what it's teaching is not, not expressed in the name which is in itself indicative of something more to the story. What does that mean? Why is the, not the what, not the what it is, but what it does, the definer of, of it? It's teaching and educating, but it, the, uh, these words mean different things, and therefore I'd just like to understand it first on a very surface level. Okay? We have a world, a beautiful world, a world that is full of wonder and amazing things that exist in this world. This world was created by God. God, who created this world, wanted man to experience this world in the fullest, most amazing way to get the maximum amount of pleasure from this world. And Torah is just that. It teaches the manual. It's the manual that teaches the way, the best way to experience this world as it exists. And that's what it's there for, to teach how to live in this world in every single aspect that you can imagine. And I'm sure as you study in the laws of Shabbos, all the different minutiae, the detail is staggering how detailed every component of your life is actually a halachic question, a law based question that you need to think about. And that's, my mind, what Torah is in a nutshell. It's teaching every component of your life how to experience this world in the fullest, best way. I love that. That's the elevator pitch. When someone says, what do you do in Jewish outreach? It's, we teach people through Torah how to maximize pleasure. There you go. Exactly, which is what it is. You have to define what pleasure means, but the ultimate pleasure, which a lot of people's, like you said, in the two-dimensional world, their idea of pleasure is the most lowest rungs of pleasure, not what we're going after. So let's go back to my one of the questions I posed, which was when we define what is Torah, meaning, like I said, many of us, when you ask that question, we will think of the Torah scrolls. And I mentioned that's, that's, that's maybe part of the answer. Many people will say, well, Torah is, like you said, those five books of Moses, the Torah scroll. But that's, what is it? We go through that once a year. We read through every, every year we go through the entire cycle. 
which uh, I remember reading somewhere how amazing that is. Can you imagine how come it is that there is no nation out there, that I'm aware of at least, that they have a cycle where they read through the laws of the country or of the people to make sure that they're familiar with all the things they need to do. That's amazing. Right. It's amazing. Like there is an expectation that, oh, well, the lawyer and the judge need to know. We just live our lives and hope that what we're doing is allowed. Or maybe we can Google it, you know, after the fact and then we're stuck. No, no, no. We're studying it together. We're learning it. Every week we're studying the Parsha. We're hearing from the rabbi about the Parsha. So it's an amazing thing. The Parsha is only a piece of it. And let's start back from okay. what exactly is Torah. I said it's teaching, but okay, what's the corpus of that teaching? So it's very important to understand that Torah is divided to the written law and the oral law. And I want to—I think that's very important to just clarify why that is, even though I haven't seen anywhere why that is. But I'm giving you an insight into that from just my own years of studying. You sort of get a sense. The power of having both written and oral law is so helpful in life, in your comfort zone with recognizing that what the rabbi is telling me, I can source it back to the text. That means he's not just coming up with it from, from what he's in the mood. It's not a bunch of rabbis, you know, in a smoke-filled room just deciding, well, what kind of difficult thing are we going to come up with to uh, make someone's life difficult? That's not what's going on. Everything has to come back and have a line that goes straight back to the source. And there in the source of the text, that somewhere in those five books of Moses, comes out to that, connects to that oral law. Now, that is not completely true. That is only, I would say, 90% true. What's missing is that there's certain oral laws that are what we call halacha lemoshe misinai, which means that we heard this directly from Moshe, who heard it from God at Sinai, and it was decided that this law should not be written into the text. It should be completely oral. In other words, in the oral law, which is the tradition that's handed down from teacher to student, I want to explain. So by having just a written law, that's flawed because everyone's going to come to it with their own interpretation and say, well, to this, this is what we had. We suffered with the Sadducees and the Karaites throughout history of people who came to the text in their own image and saying, well, to me, that's what this means something else. And then, no, you know, there's no agreement. So we have an, a written law, but we also have an oral law. The oral law was passed down from teacher to student, teacher to student. Every student heard from their teacher. People think, well, how can that even be even real? How far? That must be thousands of people till I get to the to Moses at Sinai. Did you ever look how, how far it is? It's not that many. Matter of fact, I made a bookmark. Or on the bookmark, it has God, Moses, all the way down. Joshua, to working your way down? Working your way down. It all fits on a bookmark. If it's in one bookmark, it's yeah. not that many. People yeah. think of it as like crazy, but no, no, no. It's really not that far because when you think the span of generations, I've seen my grandfather, I can study from my grandfather. That goes back quite a few years. And there's a, a chain, an unbroken chain of tradition that's going back to Moshe at Sinai. 
this power is like a dual power by having the two worlds of the written law and the oral law that are intertwined, that are bound to each other, that keeps both of them accurate. Oral law is kept, is reined in by the fact that it draws its sourcing back to the text. You can say, wait a second, that, that doesn't read very well. What are you doing? You know, did you make that up? You understand? The, the fact that it's drawn from the text and there's rules how to draw information out of the text. That's one of the very important parts of Torah is the 13 hermeneutical principles. It's so important that we actually re- say, it, every, say them over every single morning in prayer. Rabbi Yishmael Omer Rabbi Shmuel says that there are 13 hermeneutical principles, which is really the foundations of logic and how to parse text, how to develop understandings based on uh, comparing and contrasting, contrasting similar words used in two places. These are the processes by which we have the oral tradition verified. It's going to fit into one of these 13 hermeneutical principles. I will tell you, like I said, the only exception to that is the halach l'moshe m'sinah, which is completely oral. And I want to give a little bit of an insight. Why would God choose to give the Torah in such a way that I get why there's an oral, I get why there's written, I get how they help each other. But what about this oral that's not connected at all to the written, that's completely oral? And the answer, and it's very insightful, and this I've found over my years of study, is that by taking it out of that, of that chapter, that, of that section, of the connection to the text, it basically put a parenthesis around it that it's not to be subject to the hermeneutical principles. So it basically allows it to be Standalone law that just it is what it is. I'll give you an example. Let's see. Halach l'moshe dictates that the tefillin needs to be black. It is not written anywhere in the text. There's no hint to it in any text that tefillin needs to be black. It's completely oral tradition from Moses at Sinai that that's the proper color for tefillin. If it was hinted at in the Torah, then I got news for you. Clothes that we should wear or other things that might be a mitzvah, should also be black. Because once it's written down, or hinted at in the text, text has to connect to each other. The Torah is one unit. And therefore, if something is written somewhere, it automatically connects to the rest of the Torah. And unless you see a reason, or there's a source, why it should be different, the assumption is that it needs to be the same. Okay, so that's, to me, just an example that comes to mind of, what we mean by having it as a separate law that's not connected to the Torah. It's not to be, you're not supposed to draw inference from it. It's supposed to stand alone as this is how this needs to be. And it's, like I said, in parentheses or in a box. That's the value of having an option of halach l'moshim as well to not be bound and stuck into the world of hermeneutical principles. So that's just an example. Now, as far as what is included in Torah, I think that was part of what you're, in the intro you were talking about. I think that's a very important exploration. Where does Midrash fall in? Where does Zohar fall in? And for that matter, where does arguments fall in? Okay, I don't know if you didn't ask that question, but I don't know if that's not bothering you. You studied Talmud for a minute, 
you're stuck with so many views and arguments and constantly pulling one way or the other. I have this proof, I have that proof. And uh, where does all this fit in in the Torah if the Torah is given by one God? Right. And, and quite often there's no like final conclusion. Well, the conclusion is, he says like this and he says like this. <laughs> this rabbi says this way and this rabbi says that way. Uh, the famous joke that they asked the rabbi, to, who, his, who the woman was complaining, my husband's so terrible and he's that and he's this and that. And the rabbi tells her, you're right, you're right, you're so right. Then the husband comes and complains about his wife, and he says the same thing to his wife, to the husband. You're right, you're right, you're right. And then this, his student is standing there, and he says, how can they both be right? And he's like, you're right, you're right, you're right. <laughs> you're also right, okay? The answer, so how can they both be right? But that's the beauty and the power of Torah, that there is every human being is built differently, and every human being has a viewpoint and that viewpoint is like a facet in a diamond. It's real, it's from their perspective, but it's true from their perspective. Is it the whole truth? It's their perspective truth. It's true, but it's their perspective truth. And the other side as well, it's truth. Is it the whole? The whole truth is, this rabbi says like this, that rabbi says like that, and they both are accurate in their view. And I'll give you an example. It's a beautiful Talmudic passage. There was a, a discussion, okay? I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, the story in the Navi. The story goes is that there was a man from the tribe of Benjamin, and uh, he had a concubine, and uh, the concubine, he was angry at her, and he kicked her out of the house, and she ended up getting raped, and he was so distraught about what happened to her that he, she was killed from the rape. It was like a gang rape type of circumstance, a terrible story. And he cut her up into pieces and sent her to the other tribes. And there was a civil war between the tribe of Benjamin and all the other tribes who were outraged by such an occurrence. Okay. Now, the Torah doesn't give us information. It describes how he kicked her out because he was angry at her. What was he angry about? So one rabbi said he was angry about a certain thing. And the other rabbi says it was something else. So somebody went, you know, had a, a met, met up with Eliyahu, with Elijah the prophet, and he said, well, what's the truth? What was it that, that he was upset about? So he says, well, this rabbi says this, and that rabbi says that. And he says, yeah, but, but what's the truth? The answer is both were there. There was, there was the first reason and the second reason. And the question is, what was the, what's the real reason? Is the thing that happened first the true catalyst? Or the second thing that was the final. You understand? And that's what they're disputing. They're both there. They're both real. But it's part of the picture. And then there's a the fuller picture. And the full picture is understanding both opinions. And the moment that we're able to appreciate the two sides in an argument, that is really where we gain the most insight into the truth. So that, I hope, helps for that. could be applied to all disputes. Now, as far as... I didn't get to the other part of your question, which is, how does Midrash fit in? How does Zohar fit in? So I want you to understand that the Torah, there's a word that we use to describe all the parts of the Torah. The word is pardes. The word really is contraction of, comprised of four different words that start with each of those letters. The pe stands for pshat, which is the simple, straightforward meaning. Halacha is really the 
straight, simple, forward meaning. That the Torah always is to be understood on that way, for sure. That's, also, that's one fact. There's another level, another layer of understanding that the Torah is also part of the Torah, which is called remez. These are hints in the Torah. Remez means a hint. This is like deeper ideas that the Torah is not saying in a direct fashion. It's conveying in hints, and it's to convey insight and a depth of understanding and messages that are underlying messages behind the story. That's sometimes you would find in gematrias, the numerical values of the letters, a hint to something that can be a very profound idea that you can actually take with you in your life. And that falls under that category of what I would call remez, hints. The Dalit stands for drush. Drush is a combination of the hermeneutical principles, which is not the direct meaning of the text, but the connection from text A to text B and what's being conveyed there. The Torah is given in such a way that it's like to maximize the amount of information you can derive from a minimum of text. That's what the power of this drush is, is that the same text can be conveyed on different layers, and both layers are true, and there is, from comparison and contrast, it can actually convey more information than just the simple, straightforward read. That's that. And the last one is the Samach, which is Zod. Zod means secrets. That's really where you get to the Zohar and the Kabbalistic thought. These are very, very deep ideas into the nature of God, then basic, basic, deep questions about what the world is, what's the underpinnings of the world. How did God create? What did God use, utilize to create this world? The vision of Ezekiel that talks about the chariots, which is really focused on how does God run this world? These things are what we fall, fall under the category of sod, of secrets of the Torah. They are even a little more subtle in a sense than the then the remes, the hints, their deep, deep ideas that are not trying to convey a law. They're giving you insights into the big questions about life and give us a view on that. And it's not for everybody at every stage. That's more when you've reached that level, then you're given a glimpse into these areas of the secrets of the Torah. So they all comprise the Torah altogether, and it's all under, it's layer upon layer within the same text that can be conveying a multitude of ideas. Thank you for listening to part one of What is Torah with Rabbi Nagel. Stay tuned for the upcoming release of part two. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Torch so they can continue to spread Torah wisdom to the world by making a donation at torchweb.org and clicking Donate in the top right corner of the page. And if you would like to get in contact with our host with comments, suggestions for future topics of learning, or questions for him or his guest rabbis, you may email him at president at torchweb.org.